Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with the author of The Polarizers, Post-War Architects of Our Partisan Era. The book is published by University of Chicago Press in 2018. The author is Sam Rosenfeld. Sam, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great, Heath. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I um, have really enjoyed the book, um, read it uh, over the break, uh, now back from the uh, holiday break, and have the chance to talk to you about it. Uh, before we talk about the book, why don't you just share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a, a assistant professor of political science at Colgate University. Um, I have a, I, I guess, a probably somewhat unorthodox background for a professor of political science. I have a PhD in history and, and not a PhD in sci- uh, political science. I, uh, I got a, a PhD in history from Harvard University. Um, and after that, ha, ha, did a kind of visiting assistant professor circuit across uh, small liberal arts colleges here in the Northeast, um, and I'm now uh, uh, planted here at, at Colgate. Prior to grad school, I was a journalist in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, for a magazine called The American Prospect for, for several years. I, I wrote and edited uh, there. The irony being, you probably know more about the history and important players in the American Political Science Association than 99% of uh, the political scientists in the country, because that's in some ways a focus of some of the early parts of the book. And let's let's talk just about that, because the book really begins with with a crisis of sorts, and and that crisis is of of relatively low party polarization during the 1940s or so. And it was, at least in part, members of the APSA who, who saw a crisis in party politics. So who exactly pulled the alarm? And what was the argument made about the core problem with parties uh, that were uh, hard, the, the core problem that parties were hard to differentiate, differentiate from each other? So take us to that time period and, and the architects of this. Sure. Um, you know, the, the biggest name of, of the alarm pullers, as you put it, uh, would be E.E. E. Schatzschneider, um, a, a, a political scientist at Wesleyan, um, and someone who was who had a kind of oracular power, a kind of prophetic uh, 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 power over a, a school of other political scientists, you might, you might say. He, he kind of built a big network around himself and around a set of ideas that uh, he had put out in, in work starting, uh, or most famously in a 1942 book called Party Government. Um, the, the theoretical and prescriptive sort of doctrine uh, that is associated with Schatzschneider and these other uh, political scientists who uh, then joined a, a, an APSA uh, a committee on political parties is, is called Responsible Party Government. That dates back to... Uh, Progressive era writings from from Woodrow Wilson and and, and others. Woodrow Wilson was a scholar, um, but achieved a kind of mid century revival in the wake of the New Deal, I would say. Um, and the the mid century historical context is 
a Democratic Party that has um, a growing uh, northern uh, and uh, western electoral uh, presence uh, that came about as a result of uh, the Roosevelt presidency and uh, inroads made into new constituencies, new regions, particularly urban and labor constituencies, um, and a congressional Democratic Party that still has a large uh, and disproportionately empowered conservative faction of Southerners, Southern Democrats who are Democrats not as a result of the kind of programmatic agenda of, of New Deal liberalism, but are Democrats because they're Democrats and have been Democrats since the 19th century. These political scientists who I think are by and large disproportionately uh, New Deal liberals themselves uh, had, had um, done work during uh, for the war effort uh, in various capacities. Um, what they see in the mid-century, uh, they're look, looking overseas. A lot of these were kind of... Um, Anglophiles in various ways and people who, who liked the Westminster parliamentary system in the UK, they see uh, Clement Attlee and the Labour Party uh, taking power uh, right after World War II in, in Great Britain and being able to implement a kind of comprehensive social democratic agenda. And what they see in the United States is um, uh, Roosevelt and then especially Harry Truman um, being elected on what they see as a popular uh, liberal uh, policy agenda and are stymied by, uh, there's both a kind of critique of the constitution of checks and balances of a kind of cumbersome um, congressional process, but also stymied by uh, uh, a faction of their own party. And that factional heterogeneity that you can see in the Democratic Party, there's a counterpoint on the Republican side. There are um, uh, predominantly Midwestern-based uh, uh stalwart conservatives. And then there's liberals and moderates. Uh, a lot of sort of big state governors were liberal and moderate Republicans. There's a tradition to that as well. And what you end up getting is as reflected in all sorts of kind of empirical political science scholarship that a lot of listeners will be familiar with, um, this mid-century era of uh, exceptionally high levels of bipartisan lawmaking, a large overlap, ideological overlap among um, lawmakers uh, uh, in Congress, uh, and as a result, a kind of uh, the, the two parties' national platforms and, and policy agendas uh, are pretty fuzzy and indistinct from one another. Uh, that was perceived as a problem by um, Schatzschneider and, and, and his crew, who are named to form a committee on political parties uh, in the late 1940s for the American Political Science Association. They put out a report uh, called Toward a More Responsible Two-Party System um, that uh, lays out an argument for uh, why indistinct parties in a two-party system where these parties are the only games in town fails democratically. It, it doesn't give voters uh, sufficient choice or alternative directions for um, taking policy. Uh, and then once in office, these parties are incapable of um, uh, forming and then actually implementing comprehensive policy agendas. And therefore, uh, come the next re-election, come the next election, voters uh, have no way of knowing who to hold accountable for policy outcomes. They thought that was bad. Now, now Democrats largely benefited from this party system for, for much of this time period, much of the 20th century, 
But by the end, uh, the mid 1960s, things begin to shift for the party. I wonder if you talk a little bit about where the pressures come to sort out the Democratic Party. Where where is it? Is it the the APSA offering its its uh, scholarly critiques, or or are there some other things to take into account um, uh, to to understand this uh, these changes? Sure. I mean, I do. I, I because uh, I think political scientists often bring up. Uh, this APSA report and, and uh, under the assumption that it was ineffectual and had no effect, much like most of us feel about our work most of the time. But it, it did. It was uh, it had a, a limited degree of, of real political impact. Um, but no, that was clearly not the that's not what is causing the changes in the Democratic Party over these decades. What you get on the ground and in the world of um, kind of uh, political activism that is relevant to party politics you have first, it's kind of two, two waves, I would say, tied up in generations. You have, in the context of a long-term decline of patronage-based party organizations that dates back to the progressive era, um, where the basis for being involved in party politics uh, is, is material. Um, uh, supplanting that, you have the rise of issue-driven, um, sometimes ideologically driven political activism, uh, what comes to be called the uh, club Democrats or amateur Democratic sort of movement. James Q. Wilson wrote a book about uh, these people at the uh, at the city politics level um, in the early 1960s. And these are, uh, after World War II, uh, predominantly middle class, um, disproportionately educated and professional um, uh, liberal political activists who are they're New Deal liberals. They're getting involved in um, and in confrontation with existing state and local Democratic Party organizations uh, who are typically, uh, if not sort of outright machine oriented, they're, they're less ideological and issue driven. Um, and they wave a mantle of reform of the parties themselves, as well as uh, a kind of a set of policy positions and policy agendas uh, relating to the welfare state and especially civil rights that animates and ends up transforming a lot of uh, northern uh, state and local democratic uh, parties over the course of the 1950s and, and early 1960s. I spend a lot of time on these people. They 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 really did imbibe some degree of uh, responsible party doctrine they, they spoke in the language of of reorientating the parties so that they are both more issue driven uh, and more differentiated from one another and they act with more uh, discipline when in office and then of course a, a huge motor for political activism and, and factional politics over the course of these decades is the civil rights movement um, that has some of its own distinct um, origins but uh, Civil rights organizations are tied to a lot of uh, labor movement activists who have connections to these reformist democratic activists. Um, they are all, all articulating uh, something of the same critique of how institutions like Congress operate to empower Southern Democrats, um, as well as reforms of the parties themselves. Um, and from uh, one of the arguments, the kind of historical argument I try and make is that there's there's more continuity in the moralistic language, the reformist uh, uh, and insurgent kind of ethos of these 50s and early 60s uh, activists 
and the new social movement activism of what we think of and associate with the 1960s um, that is typically a generation younger, but um, is also all about sort of injecting both a kind of moral substance and a commitment to issues into uh, the pragmatic politics as usual of the day. Um, and that, of course, builds into a, a new reformist push in the late 19, from starting with the 1968 convention uh, and culminating in the McGovern-Frazier reforms of, uh, of nominating procedures. So uh, playing a part uh, in this, this sorting. Uh, and you have this great chapter about Bill Brock. Uh, would you describe who he was and why he is so central to the changes in the Republican Party in the 1970s? Yeah. So, I mean, the 70s is this very uh, pivotal decade, as a historian wrote a book called Pivotal Decade a few years ago. Um, and the kind of historiography in the 70s sees it now as this uh, hinge point decade. And I think it's that's true for the party stories as well. On the Republican side, you have um, a more familiar story of the, of the uh, uh, you know, gold the the post-war grassroots conservative activism, as well as the intellectual conservative activist, conservative output of Bill Buckley and the National Review, et cetera, um, culminating culminating in the Goldwater insurgency of 1964, and you you get some of the same the sort of a parallel factional battle between ideologues and pragmatists in the Republican side, as you see in in the Democratic side. By the 1970s. There is at the top level in the wake of uh, Watergate just a uh, true disarray um, and institutional flux on the Republican side. But you also have kind of two tracks of issue activism and, and sort of grassroots movement activism that are gathering and importantly being channeled by political entrepreneurs that we that we call the new right. You have on the one hand a mobilization, a much more self-conscious mobilization of business interests into intense political advocacy, both through lobbying and um, and um, ideological and intellectual output as well as, as party politics. And then you have the rise of these new hot button social issues, um, uh, sort of grassroots social and cultural uh uh, conservatism that we associate with populism, with, uh, with um, the rise of the Christian right as a, as a major component of the Republican Party. So all of this is kind of going on. And there are, um, I think the important architects are these new right brokers, essentially, who are forging ties between um, uh, these new movements, many of which, including the Christian right, did not have a, a, a kind of affiliation with the Republican Party prior to uh, 1978 or so, uh, and forging ties with them and and the institutional Republican Party. And Bill Brock, to get back to your question, is the uh, is a former senator from Tennessee, a uh, Republican, gets elected as Republican National Committee chairman in 1977. And I think it plays an important role in seeing the shifts going on at the kind of movement level and in the intellectual level and keeping all of that, channeling all of that energy into uh, the institutional Republican Party, while at the same time um, advancing institutionally changes in the Republican Party that made it more of a centralized, nationalized 
um, uh, electoral vehicle. So he invests, um, he, he actually invests in intellectual output under his, uh, it was short-lived after his tenure, but the Republican National Committee was putting out conservative conservative policy journal. They invested a lot in the, the, their kind of intellectual infrastructure, but they're also investing in candidate recruitment. They're channeling money unusually for uh, national party committees in, in American political history. They're channeling money to state and local parties and channeling money into uh, recruiting candidates for state legislative races as a way of building up their, their field. Um, and they have a kind of open door to uh, these new social movement energies on the right. So they, uh, he is careful to uh, create important relationships with Christian right leaders. He's certainly attuned to the new business activism uh, on the right. And so he, prior to what a lot of people associate with Reagan and the Reagan campaign and the Reagan presidency as, as being the kind of uh, genesis of the modern conservative apparatus as it operates through the Republican Party. Um, Brock is this important figure in actually putting that together in the second half of the 1970s. Yeah. The, and, and to continue in this sort of same moment, um, there are these people, architects like like Bill Brock, but they they elbow aside other people. And you write in one of the chapters, sort of, a I guess, a case study of sorts. Um, and, and maybe I'll just quote from this. Um, and I quote, the journey of Mary Chris from party co-chairman to party dissident to party outcast in a few years played out as a one-woman dramatization of the ideological sorting that transformed the party system during the 1970s. Well, who is Mary Crisp? And, and her, her story is sort of a very sad uh, story ab- about this time period and the, the effect on, on the, her politics and her political career. Yeah. So, so the, the context for some of that is that, uh, you know, th- there had been an expectation of a potential realignment of the parties in the 1970s around these new cultural issues, um, supplanting the kind of economic and uh, role of government issues of, of, that came from the New Deal. Um, what in fact happened was that the parties ended up sorting and polarizing on the new social and cultural issues and the economic issues. But the, the sort of cultural side of this caught a lot of people in the vortex. And so Mary Dent Crisp was a political activist, longtime political activist from Arizona, who was named party co-chair when Bill Brock took the chairmanship of the Republican National Committee. She had been a loyal and active Republican her entire career. And what she also was, was a self-identified feminist, as were many other Republican Republicans at the time, uh, especially Republican, professional Republican women. And her tenure as Republican co-chair you know, coincides with Reagan's uh, he ran in 76, and then he, he was building up a campaign for nomination again in, in 1980. And it also coincides with this huge mobilization by people like Phyllis Schlafly on the right, on the new right, to combat the state ratification process of the Equal Rights Amendment. And she's tenure, it's the same time when you get a major mobilization of, of the pro-life movement and an injection of the pro-life movement into uh, Republican platform politics. She was both a pro, she was both pro-choice and ardently pro-ERA as, and would continue to point out as she started doing battle with these activists that the Republican Party had had the national platform of the Republican Party had been in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment for several decades and had had a much more 
consistent uh, supportive view of the ERA than the Democratic Party had. But over the course of the second half of the 1970s, very, very rapidly, I mean, the ERA had made it just to a handful of states left uh, needed to, to ratify the amendment after it had passed overwhelmingly in Congress. This new, nascent, uh, anti-feminist political activism caught Mary Crisp in its crosshairs. And by the time of the 1980, leading up to the 1980 convention, once it was clear Reagan was going to be the nominee, Crisp is increasingly outspoken about her own opposition to uh, Reagan She's, she gives an interview in which she says a lot of nice things about John Anderson, who had been a moderate Republican uh, nominee seeker and then uh, decided to run an independent uh, candidacy that year. And that, that uh, interview, um, uh, she had already had an increasingly strained relationship with the rest of the leadership in the Republican National Committee, including um, Bill Brock. Um, that interview causes Bill Brock to essentially silence her at the convention, stripped her of all of her uh, uh, formal roles that she was slated to have at the uh, 1980 Republican convention. Um, At that convention, you get activism to eliminate support for the ERA and eliminate um, or or toughen the pro-life planks on the Republican platform of two things that these activists succeed in doing over the strident but ultimately unsuccessful opposition of of defenders of of Republican feminists like uh, Crisp. She gives a tear-felt sort of farewell speech at the uh, platform convention. And then she goes right into the John Anderson campaign and becomes a, an official in the John Anderson campaign. So over the course of literally just a few years, you see the experience of somebody being caught in volatile, factional crosswinds. And it's someone who can, you know, who can go all the way back to activism in the Goldwater campaign of 64 for her claims to Republican Party loyalty and service, but is no longer with the program when it comes to a whole line of issue positions that are rapidly becoming the positions that Republicans need to take. Yeah, there's so many interesting stories like that and so many aspects of the book that I think contribute to how we think about our uh, hyperpolarized uh, period that we're in. Again, the title of the book is The Polarizers, Post-War Architects of Our Partisan Era. Sam's book is published by University of Chicago Press and available everywhere, including on Amazon. Sam, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you. This was great.